Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to be here among you this morning. Even though Wes already said way too much about me, I want to add something else. And that is, when I began at Princeton Seminary at age 49, the median age of my classmates was 26. And there was a, a young woman named Leah Miller who was my classmate and we bonded during that first semester of ancient Greek. And we would quiz each other and practice our vocabulary lists. Friends, I've had an eye on Pinnacle for a long time, ever since Wes came here. I might live on the other coast, but I follow you. And I knew when I recommended Leah to Wes, I knew where I was sending her. And I'm so happy to see how well she has landed. And what a joy! <laughs> What a joy to be with Leah and Wes on the same Sunday in the same place. Let us focus now. Let us turn our attention to the word of the Lord. Friends, this is a story that is repeated in all four of the Gospels. The story of Jesus feeding the thousands, feeding the multitudes. And I've chosen the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 32 through 37. Listen as the Spirit moves through these words. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. Jesus told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Lord, silence every voice within us but your own. Startle us with your truth. Surprise us with what your love can do, all that we may become the very people you had in mind since before the foundation of the world. Amen. I met Mary when she was 93 years old. It was while I was interning at a small church in Philadelphia. That church had a sanctuary with a seating capacity for about 450 and about 12 to 18 folks would attend on Sunday morning. Fellowship after worship often became a conversation about what would become of their church. Now Mary took great interest in these conversations. What might we try? How could we attract families with young children? What new ministry might we consider that would reach beyond the walls? 
and even what's wrong with people that they don't come to church. Now, during these conversations on cue, Mary would brighten and suggest, we ought to have a spaghetti supper. Oh, there'd be a polite pause, a few nods out of respect of our dear, sweet, naive sister in Christ, and the conversation would move on. Maybe someone jotted down spaghetti supper on a piece of paper, probably not. In remembering Mary's small suggestion, in the face of much uncertainty about the future, it makes me wonder about the folks on the hillside with Jesus that day long ago. Whoever offered a paltry few loaves and a few fish must have seemed as naive as suggesting that a spaghetti supper can save the church. No cries of, aha, now that's a solution. That crowd had followed Jesus. They had been there for three days. They were in a place of great uncertainty. A place of uncertainty. Friends, that's where we are too. In churches across this country, there is much uncertainty about the future. Fewer people in worship, less money given, there's a distrust of institutions, many changes spurred on by the pandemic, and our political identity often has more say than our Christian identity. What's next? What are we to think? What are we to do? What shall we try or teach? Who might we hire or hear? Is a time coming when we simply flee or faint or fail? In Matthew's account, Jesus surveys the scene. He sees the crowd. He knows the hour is late. Uncertainty teetering on panic fills the air. And we hear Jesus say to his disciples, I have compassion on these people. There's God in the flesh with an empty stomach and a heart full of compassion for the throngs of people who have followed him and trusted him and learned from him. And now they're in distress. So too for the church as we know it, I trust that God knows that we are in a place of uncertainty. And I imagine that compassion is extended to us too. I trust that God will be God, nothing less, as we live this time of distressing decline and rapid change. And I can't fathom anyone more perfect to entrust our sadness and upset to than the one who knows what it means to be broken. So where is God in this alarming news of what's next for the church? Let's go back to the story. Jesus, filled with compassion, told the crowd to sit. And they did. 
Chaos threatened but calm prevailed. Jesus fed them all they needed and then some. Miracle happened in the calm, not in the chaos, in the trusting, not in the tension. Bread and fish aplenty, a meal for their bodies, their minds, and their spirits. In this story, may we be reminded that Jesus spoke and the people sat down. God acts and we respond. Once upon a time, Wes was my pastor and I was a first grade teacher in the pews. And about that time, I had been in education for about 20 years. And in my teaching life, I started to become very aware that it was not me, it was not my teaching that got those children up on their feet as readers and writers and early mathematicians. The more I taught, the more I was a witness. I was a witness to what already was taking place. I often felt like I needed to be a human dam and just keep back all the floodwaters that would rush in and in any way tell this child that they were a no when they were already a yes. That sensibility, that awareness, that humility, I bring to my congregational ministry. Yes, yes, we offer wonderful programs, but friends, all of our initiatives, offerings, programs, events, ministries, they are all in glad response to what God has already done in Jesus. So we don't rush ahead right? Trying to get ahead of it. Breathless with fear or looking over our shoulder and comparing what it was like 30 years ago or peeking through the fence to see what we can borrow from business models. We sit and we wait and we listen for God to direct our attention. We need not create our future. We have a creator. We live into the future that God intends for us. And as we move into God's future, I want to acknowledge and stick a, stick a comma right there. There is much to lament. We need to take time to lament. There is grief over what we have lost and all that continues to come undone as statistics and studies document decline. And so we lament and at the same time, we cherish and remember those memories of how it was. I want to share a memory of mine that stays with me. The white clapboard church of my childhood, it sits atop a hill in rural Maine. The church was the center on which my childhood revolved. And I remember I remember a little bit bored and a little bit hungry during worship. I'd stand up to sing the hymn and I'd kind of lean against my mother, just kind of rest my head on her, and I would feel the vibrations of her body as she sang. And I noticed when the vibrations stopped, and I'd look up 
and I would see that she was crying. Though I was sad to see her cry, I remember feeling safe. You see, the organ didn't stop. The singing wasn't paused. The voices all around us carried her, and me too. Maybe my little girl brain somehow deduced that that Sunday school God who was powerful enough to part the Red Sea and love all the little children of the world was the same God that the adults in the pews came to worship. And that meant that my mother was in capable hands. Church was a safe place a love-infused place where burdens were carried and healing happened through the gathered community. And that little church is closed now. Volunteers in town keep the monthly rummage sale going and the housing ministry has been absorbed by the United Way. The church that was is gone. Yet, yet, I am the recipient of a rich, rich inheritance. The love that carried my mother and I carries me still. And I have passed love on to others in my life and in my vocation. So friends, I want to acknowledge that there is and there will be much to lament we lament the way it was. We grieve what might not be again. But the breaking is part of the story. I bet, I betcha, that on that hillside with Jesus, I bet there were a few, you know, there's always a few in the crowd, who surveyed the scene, they anticipated that lack of food. Oh, they beat feet out of there. Right? You know, like the people who leave at the bottom of the seventh inning, right? Because it's over. They know it's over. And then you get home and find out you missed the most exciting innings of the season. Yeah. Who has time to imagine a miracle when you're starving? However, if you duck out on the pain, you miss the provision. And if you avoid the breaking, you miss the giving. So even as we lament, we praise, and we wait, and we wonder. I wonder what this breaking will bring forth. I wonder what this decline will reveal. I wonder what form God's compassion on God's people will take. And as I grieve what has been lost and cannot imagine the future of the church, I am confident that God holds our future. My darling husband of 39 years pops four pills a day of caradopa lepidopa. It's the drug for Parkinson's patients that mediates symptoms and resists decline. He affectionately calls them his chicklets. Some days I'm wondering, I think there's a race on to find a version of Caradopa Lebedopa for the National Church. 
Nearly daily unsolicited emails arrive in my inbox with offers to help me and my congregation weather the decline and stop the hemorrhaging that threatens the future of the church as we know it. These church chicklets offer to mediate and troubleshoot and resist what seems inevitable. Blogs and books, clergy coaching and conferences, initiatives and innovations. I'm grateful for the drugs that mediate what is, but the chicklets are not the cure. There must also be a surrender to what is beyond human control. Surrender, not giving up, but giving in. It's an allowing. A giving in to what you would rather resist, a surrender to entrust your life to the one who gave you life, and enjoy the day you have. That's living in the spirit. That's entrusting your life, all that you like and love, and all that you would never want, into God's future. It was one day last spring, I was somewhere between errand number three and errand number four, and I received this out-of-the-blue text from Wes. And he wrote, Can you ever take a Sunday off? Maybe come out to Scottsdale and preach and talk about the future of the church. I looked at my phone. The future of the church? Me? And then somewhere after errand four, I texted back. And I wrote, I don't know what to say about the future of the church. I am confident that God is not as anxious as we are. And if the church fails or flourishes, it's never the end. The only thing I'm certain about is love. That quick response over these months has become my considered response. The only thing that I am certain about is love. Now, friends, I can't offer wisdom greater than God's wisdom, or muster more compassion greater than God's compassion. Yet I can offer you my witness. I believe that God can do the unimaginable with brokenness. In the midst of uncertainty, I see evidence that God is still at it, still healing and calling and delighting and pursuing and guiding and provoking and, well, still being God. And the only way that I can reconcile the uncertainty for the future of the church with this evidence I witness that God is and was, is with faith and hope and love. And as scripture states, and I believe the greatest of these is love. My life and witness has been shaped by a love that would never let me go. My mantra has become, let love lead. I know when I let fear, anger, blame, worry lead me, I never wind up in a good place. What's next? 
let love lead. Especially when in a place of great uncertainty. And when disappointed or distraught or despairing, let love lead. Love led the crowd that day on the hillside. Love took compassion and calmed the upset. Love fed the people and love sent them on their way. I believe that the one who called us to gather in communities of faith has compassion on us. And we must pay attention to love itself is pointing to and revealing to us. Because again, everything we do is in response to the one who loves us and has compassion on us. As love leads, we can take notice of the moments that pierce our hearts. You know, you know it, like fiddling with the dials on an AM radio on a dark stretch of road. You know when you get the connection. Those are the moments, those piercing moments. Sometimes it happens in a, in a moment of chaotic noise or quiet. It's almost, it's almost always easily missed. Sometimes the moment is, is in words, in text, or it's in a phrase of music, a gesture from a stranger, seeing the youngest in the bell choir scratch where it itches when you've still got a ring, an unexpected tear. These moments, string them together, and they reveal plot points in God's unfolding story. Love leading us into the future. What's next? God knows. May it be so. Amen.